This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with a Storage Unpacked podcast, and today I'm joined by Abel Gordon from Lightbits Labs. Abel, how are you doing? I am doing okay, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. So thank you for joining. And could you just spend uh, a second or two giving our audience a, a bit of information about, well, yourself, you can talk about yourself if you like, or you could talk about the company or you could talk about both, but just give them a bit of background about who you are and what you do for the company. Sure. So I'm Abel Gordon, Chief System Architect of Lightbits Labs. I am working at Lightbits Labs from the inception of the company. And at Lightbits Labs, we built a NVMe over TCP cluster software-defined storage system uh, that runs in the cloud. At the very beginning, when we started the company, we were mostly focused on-prem. Recently, we expanded to the cloud, and we also have our offering on AWS. Excellent. Thank you for that. So one of the reasons this would be a great conversation to have is that I know that recently you did a release where you moved some of your code or move pretty much all of your code into user space. It was one of those things that was a trigger to me that made me think, I wonder you know, what the implications are of trying to build what I've decided to call a sand in the cloud. I, I really don't like using the word sand like that because it's it's a reflective of the wrong part of the infrastructure. It, you know, SAN means networking, not necessarily the storage, but people tend to have sort of hooked on the term SAN. And I was thinking, well, what does it really mean and what is it? what is required to build a storage platform, call it SDS, in the public cloud? And what are the challenges? So that is our topic for today, and that's our topic for discussion. And you are the ideal person to talk about that because your company has developed the software, as you've just mentioned, and we'll get into detail about what it does and exactly how it um, delivers to that sort of requirement. Let's start by actually thinking why you'd even do this, though. Why would you, in a public cloud environment that already has block storage, object storage, and file storage, why would you even build your own sort of virtual SAN in the cloud? You know, what's the reason for that? that, that that's a great question. So if you look at the different uh, block storage offerings that you start, you have in the cloud, you will see that, oh, AWS and Azure has great solutions. You know, you can look into uh, EBS, for example, you have GP2, GP3, IO1, IO2, IO2 Block Express. You go to Azure, you have the Azure Managed Disk, starting from standard SDDs, premium SSD, premium SSDB2, ultra disk. So lot of offerings available. Now, if you look at the workloads, there are a specific set of workloads that are storage intensive that requires very low latency, consistent latency, and a lot of IOPS, a lot of throughput. And for these specific workloads, now it's not that you can run any of all these different offerings that I mentioned. You need to look at those that are more kind of high performance. And when you go to that level, you will see that you're not just kind of provision a volume. This is my volume, that that's the capacity that I need, and that's it. You also need to look into additional aspects. For example, you need to look into provision IOPS, how much IOPS you need for that volume. If you're lucky, you may know that. And most of the cases, you don't really understand how your application uh, behaves in details, and you may not even know exactly how many IOPS you need. Now, if you are running at scale, that's typically what you do in the cloud. It's not that you are running a, you are running a single application, you're running many of them. So now you need to provision many of these volumes, and for each of them independently, you need to know the capacity that you, you require and the provision IOPS 
In some cases, it's also provisions throughput. Once you get to this tier of volumes, you also have some limitations with regards, for example, to protection. If you do want your data to be replicated and protected across availability zones in the cloud, in every region that you have, you will see that you have multiple availability zones. And that's, you know, to deal with cases that an ability zone goes down, you will still have access to your data. So there is no real, like we say, sun-like experience in the cloud as there is on-prem. Yeah. So as I, I was like, yeah, sure. I was just going to say, yeah, I agree. And so my background is I've done on-premises storage designs and implementations for, for decades. And one thing I look at and think is that when you did something on a SAN environment, the, the big benefit of the SAN was it consolidated the workloads into a platform where you could share the I.O. that was generated by the media that sat underneath. So everybody got a share of the you know IOPS and put throughput and bandwidth so that if one application needed more and another needed less, it would give you a degree of balancing out. Whereas when I look at the cloud, I see a lot of the um, block storage solutions, for example, being more like what it would have been when, when I had physical disks in a server in that I'm having to assign very specific IOPS and performance characteristics to each application by assigning a specific type of block storage to it. I don't get that shared experience of saying, well, here's an application where I might need a fewer IOPS, but I don't know that yet. I'll use some of those IOPS somewhere else. I don't get that sort of dynamic capability. And that seems to be one of the shortcomings for me. Exactly. You got exactly the main point. So when you're running on scale, at scale, you do want to share your storage. You do want, when, when I say share storage, I, I, I'm referring to the fact that you want to share the capacity. You want to share the performance. You want to be able to manage all the storage as a pool, very similar that you do on any stand on-prem. You have given amount of capacity, given amount of performance. I can distribute the capacity, the performance across all my volumes, all my applications uh, as I need without reconfiguring, without changing. And even very important item is how much you are going to pay. For example, when you look and manage each individual volume in an independent way, as I mentioned before, all these provision IOPS, it's not just the number that you need to specify. It's also defining how much you are going to pay for the volume. The more IOPS that you provision, the more that you are going to pay. It's not just for capacity. And you will also find that in the cloud block storage volumes, the native cloud block storage volumes, you have some kind of dependency between IOPS and capacity. Typically, to get more IOPS, you need to provision more capacity. And sometimes you just provision the capacity because you need the IOPS, not because you really are going to use all the gigabytes or terabytes that, that you are provisioning. When you have a SAN in the cloud, like Lightbits, you are also decoupling the capacity from the performance. You can have single volume that can get millions of IOPS, can be small, can be large. It's up to you. You have full flexibility and you also have scalability. What I mean with scalability, you have a SAN. You may run out of capacity. You may run out of performance of how you scale, how you get more. In the case of Lightbits, you just scale the system by, we didn't talk too much about how it works, but you know, just to give you a sense, you just create more virtual machines, add them to a pool, and that's it. You get more capacity and more performance. Yeah, we'll talk about you know the, your, your implementation in a bit more detail in a moment or two. But I think you've highlighted on, I think, what is typically 
the set of metrics that you would probably have looked at when you had on-premises storage. You know, you would you'd look at things like efficiency, you'd look at scalability, you would look at performance, and you would want to be able to control all of those aspects. And you could, so you could scale performance by scaling the number of drives you've got in the system. To a certain degree, you could scale performance in terms of IOPS with controller um, upgrades and stuff like that. Uh, obviously very manual, very inefficient in terms of process, but you know, you, at least you would have control. But the cloud does seem to have decided, I guess, because of the nature of it, that you have to have something a bit more structured, you know, a bit more within the cloud vendor's control. And it seems it's a bit like Henry Ford in some respects. You know, you can have any color as long as it's black, but, you know, for your car. But th there are restrictions because by the very nature, making something that's in incredibly dynamic, but potentially could be very complex for the, the cloud vendors to implement. Yeah, that, that, that's a very good point. Uh, I will add that one of the key values of the cloud is that they have a lot of automation at scale. So you, as we do with the Lightbits, you can leverage all this automation to provide, a, I would say, seamless end user experience. For example, we were talking about scaling. If you let the end user deal with the scaling by its own, it's going to be complicated because he needs to understand the infrastructure. He has limitations in the cloud in what he can do and not. But if you leverage all the automation that you have in the cloud for auto scaling, for example, you have scale sets, you can integrate all the cloud capabilities with your own software, in our case with Lightbit software, and bring a fully integrated solution that's very to use for the end customer. Let's continue, you know, taking, for example, the scaling capability. One of the features that you expect from any SAN solution is thin provisioning. You want to provision more at the very beginning, but you don't really going to use it. You know that, you know, only the data that I'm going to write to my volumes are going to actually utilize from the capacity. Now, back to the, the, the cloud native volume. You provision a volume, you pay for how much you provision. There is no such thing as same provisioning. You provision one terabyte volume, that's what you're going to pay, that's what you get, no matter if you wrote only 10%, 20%, or 30%. Now, back to the auto-scaling that I was mentioning before. For example, with the sun in the cloud, such as Lightbit, you can start small. You have what we call small cluster with a relatively small capacity, but you can provision much more because we are seeing provision. You can provision more than the capacity that you have, and then let all the auto-scaling integration that's coming from also the, the cloud infrastructure to detect that you are consuming the capacity. And while you start consuming the capacity, you will start scaling, adding more virtual machines to grow your sun in the cloud. So this is the, an excellent example of how actually things that may be or may have been perceived as complex on-prem or difficult in the cloud are actually simpler in the cloud because you have all this infrastructure coming from AWS, from Azure to auto-scale, get more virtual machines what you need and all the monitoring, and it actually gives you a much simpler solution. I quite like the, the discussion about the thin provisioning one because I think we, we got used to the idea of thin provisioning probably over, say, the last 10 or 15 years, and it sort of went from a situation where when you deployed storage onto a server, you had to sort of discuss it with the business and say, well, what do you think you're going to need? How much are you going to grow? Predict it over time, especially when they had physical disks, less so when we moved to virtualization. And as that application grew, either you'd find out the business had completely underestimated their requirements or they completely overestimated. And if they'd underestimated, you went into a 
a refresh and you're having to rebuild the system and put extra capacity in place and that could be messy if you if they overestimated they would be paying for resources that you couldn't reclaim and thin provisioning was quite good because it got around that and the way i used to do it was i would allocate the biggest logical volume i could and then let the volume just grow in over time and accumulate physical back-end storage over time even though the volume was as big as i could get away with it now, of course, you can't do that on the cloud unless you want to waste money because, as you said, when you provision a volume, it's it's fully provisioned. So, you know, you can't look at it and do that. So you you end up in that cycle we used to be in of having to think about reorganizing the physical storage under, underlying a virtual instance if you grow. And if you don't get grow, then you waste waste money. So it, it, it might not have been an apparent one, but there's an obvious issue there that the cloud has that we've sort of gone backwards in time a little bit and that's one of the things that you're solving as you just mentioned there correct and it's not that we just solve we also leverage the i would say a unlimited scale from from the cloud because as you were mentioned you were do doing totally right when you know you were provisioning a very big volume on-prem and just relying on steam provision that your volume will just uh, yep. consume more capacity as you go but on-prem there is still a challenge that when you need the capacity you need to look for physical resources. You need the disk, you need the Absolutely. server. In the cloud, it's all available on demand when you need it. So that's a, a very good property for the cloud that for the sun, it's very useful because, okay, you are getting out of capacity, just get more virtual machines from the cloud, add them to the pool and that's it, you got it. It's not that you need to start uh, looking around for some specific person and convince them that you need more servers or more disk and you know it's going to take, in the best case week, probably months until you get more capacity. In the cloud, it's just a matter of tech. Yep, good point. Right, okay, let's move on. Let's talk about um, the technology in the cloud now that allows you to build these sort of solutions. So I think there's some very key um, pieces here that have changed in recent times. And I I'm interested to understand how many of them were there before and how many of them are actually new. And I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples. Local NVMe drives, they weren't there in the first instances of virtual, at uh, the first stage of virtual instances. It was EBS or nothing. And in fact, actually, in Amazon, it was nothing. There wasn't even a, a, a persistent storage layer in the very beginning. But we, we gained NVMe drives, local drives, metal instances, and the ability to get much lower latency, much more predictable NVMe storage connected. We've seen networking absolutely go through the roof in terms of bandwidth and connectivity between nodes, which seems you know, to be a, a very important factor. But also there's the availability now of your technology and the evolution of that into NVMe over TCP, which gives you a, the NVMe transport over a TCP network. And those sort of things seem to be, to me, the ones that are, the technologies that have come along that are allowing us to build your sort of solutions. Would that would be, be a fair representation of where we're at? Yes. Yeah, so I think that if we look at today's cloud infrastructure, there was, as you were mentioning before, there was a huge advance from you know a very basic infrastructure up to the point that today in the cloud, you can get from infrastructure perspective, almost everything that it's available on-prem. Again, you don't have full control. You don't have the ability to customize very, very specific things. That's exactly why software has a lot of value because you have the infrastructure, but you need to know how to use the infrastructure in a very smart way, how to leverage the best from the infrastructure. And in the cloud, you don't want, and you not necessarily can deal directly with the infrastructure. So when you have ISPs, in in you know in our case, it's light bits, it's storage, but you know 
things that are not storage are relevant as well. When you have ISVs that are giving you software that can leverage this infrastructure and build additional value that you don't find directly in, I would say, the cloud native offerings, uh, that's great. And that's why exactly you see that there are many companies are all running natively in the cloud software as a service solution, or they are actually taking what they're used to run on-prem and extending, extending it to, to the cloud as well to provide value on top of this evolving infrastructure that the cloud providers are giving us. In parallel or orthogonal, I would say there is a big trend of moving to the cloud, transitioning to the cloud. Many, many companies are trying to get rid of all their on-prem infrastructure and just migrate to the cloud. And all these ISPs, like Lightbits, that gives value on the cloud infrastructure and simplify this transition because they give them the same experience that you typically have on-prem, or they solve some challenge that in the cloud is difficult or, or, is, or someone else needs to solve it, it's not just difficult. That, those are the, the, the key points because that's what we let, or that's what actually helped moving to the cloud. So let's talk about um, NVMe over TCP. Could you just explain to everybody what that actually is and why that te technology is useful? I think it would be good to understand that because people might not be fully under, uh, sort of aware of the nuances of what NVMe over TCP is. They'll you know, probably be familiar with NVMe devices connected into a server. They might have heard of NVMe over fabrics, but possibly not NVMe TCP. Sure. So NVMe over TCP, in short, it's an additional transport for NVMe over fabric. Now, NVMe over fabric is the ability to use NVMe over the network. Uh, we at Lightbase basically invented the NVMe over TCP protocol. We work with uh, uh, big companies such as Intel, Facebook to get it standardized. That's why NVMe over TCP is a standard transport as part of the NVMe over fabric spec. And Lightbit CTO actually, Saki Greenberry, is one of the co-maintainers of the NVMe over fabric stack in Linux. And he contributed the NVMe over TCP implementation to, in, into Linux. That's what you have today, NVMe over TCP inbox in Linux. So NVMe over TCP, it lets you use NVMe protocol over the network using the standard TCP IP protocol. Specifically in the cloud, this is huge because what you have in the cloud, it's a network, a virtual network. And what you will have is Ethernet, TCP IP. You will not have any fancy protocols such as fiber channel, you may find some support for RDMA, but not necessarily everywhere and not at scale. And TCP is, is really the network infrastructure available in the cloud that you can use everywhere. So what we are saying basically is that NVMe TCP enables you to use the NVMe protocol and, and, and use NVMe devices efficiently in the cloud network. Brilliant. So I think the comparison I always look at and think is people might not really have understood that fiber channel actually was a transport and above that was the transport of SCSI as a as a protocol so fiber channel itself allowed you to stretch a SCSI device across the network effectively that's what fiber channel uh, protocol was doing and the analogy here is that imagine saying uh, SCSI becomes NVMe and fiber channel becomes TCP you're you're stretching that in the same way you're, you're those are a sort of analogous to each other but I think it's probably the fact that this can be done 
without any additional hardware and done in the cloud. That's probably the most interesting thing to me. In fiber channel um, land, if you want for a better description, it's very much you have to have control of the hardware, the provisioning, the, the very fine detail. Whereas with NVMe TCP, as you said, you can put it across the standard network. There's no need for any specific networking to actually make that work. And that's a big plus in the cloud where you don't have control over the infrastructure. Correct. And that's why today you can get sun in the cloud using NVMe over TCP and still run your benchmark and notice that you can get millions of files, few hundred microsecond latencies, because you have all the, I would say, efficiency of the NVMe over Fabric protocol running on top of standard infrastructure with NVMe over TCP. Right. Okay. Let's move on and talk about then the challenges of actually delivering a solution uh, like your your software solution on top of the public cloud. We've sort of touched on some of this already, but I think it's worth, I guess, quantifying some of these points because uh, although we've talked about them as part of the discussion already, I think having a an actual quantification helps us understand it a bit more. Now, I just briefly mentioned one there that you don't really have that direct access to the underlying infrastructure. As a vendor, and just like me as a customer, if I was using Amazon or any of the other cloud providers, I only get to access what the cloud provider wants me to have access to. And I don't really have any understanding necessarily of how the technology is implemented underneath the covers. And that to me seems at least two things that are, are difficult. But there must be more challenges than just that building on top of the public cloud. All right. So I would say one of the main challenges in public cloud is related to the infrastructure, as you mentioned before. For example, when you go to AWS or you go to Azure, you ask for instances, virtual machines, and you, in the best case scenario, you can specify the availability zone that in some cases they have placement groups, proximity groups, but you don't really know where this is going to run. It's going to be somewhere in the data center, right? On-prem, you are used to like architect your own solution. You know where you place your servers, you know how far they are from each other, how the network looks like. So you have full control. In the cloud, you ask for something, you get it, you know, okay, this is the spec. You are supposed to get, for example, a, an instance virtual machine with this amount of NVMe devices, this capacity, but where is it running? In a data center, in a rack, how is the network connected? I, I need another instance and they need to talk with each other. So now, for example, it's not that you have full control in the infrastructure, but you now need to stay Try to see what are the services that the cloud providers gives you to try to optimize your system. For example, in this case that we're talking about, if you want the instances to be close to each other, you can use what's called placement group or proximity groups, depending on using AWS or Azure uh, terminology. Now we can take it a bit uh, deeper into failure scenario, right? When you deploy on-prem, specifically for storage and cluster storage that you do replication, you need to be aware of the failure domains. You, you typically try to place your replicas or, or of data in servers that are not co-located. So if, for example, a rack goes down, you know that you will still have a different server in a different rack with the, the copy of your data, so all is good. Now in the cloud, are, are my copies co-located? Are they not co-located? Are they running in the virtual machine in the same server? So if the server goes down, actually I'm losing both of them at the same yeah. time. So, so these are things that you, you need to pay more attention. There are things that we solve, that we did, but it's just in a different way. You need to use the cloud native services that AWS and Azure provide as opposed to dealing with the physical infrastructure because you cannot do that. 
I think that's really, really quite an int- important one to understand that you might think that there would be some logic as to distributing your applications across or your virtual instances, instances across hardware. But why would they? I mean, the cloud is running to optimize itself rather than to optimize for you. So unless you're taking advantage of a metric or a parameter that the cloud provider provides, the cloud provider is going to place your workloads in a place that allows it to run its infrastructure the most efficiently. So there's almost like a, not a conflict there, but there's a sort of like, there's two requirements going on. You know, you want your resiliency, you want your your stuff to be spread out, but the cloud provider is like, well, I want my infrastructure to run efficiently, so I'm going to place it wherever I like. Um, and that I guess that's what you're referring to. You have to take the parameters that the cloud provider provides that let you exploit those resiliency and distribution capabilities, because otherwise you could end up with it all sitting on the same box, per, you know, potentially. You are totally right. And, and that's what we are doing with this specific example with regards to the placement of the resources. Okay, so let's let's talk about operating system though. So this one I think is an interesting one. So you know, if you're building a, an application, you maybe if you say we're doing it on prem, you might well um, take a a particular platform that you're comfortable with, a distribution that you use. You may well modify it and customize it a certain way. You may harden it, for example. Um, but also you may put software in there that needs to run in the kernel. And of course, as soon as you do that, you're now at, at risk that you've exposed yourself to to needing let's say let's say more resilient software because if it crashes you're in a world of pain but i think there's more than that and there's the there's the issue of things like in the cloud there are certain device drivers that will talk to the operating system uh, sorry the underlying hypervisor um, devices so you can't just like throw in any ami or any operating system distribution and hope it will work there are certain restrictions the cloud provider has to has, has put in place for that so how does that sort of get in the way of what you're doing in terms of how you design stuff that's a very good point first of all i would say avoid implementing software in the kernel I can tell that we did that in our previous version, mostly because we were on-prem, as, as, as you mentioned before, you have more control around the distribution, the kernel that you use, how you manage the upgrades, because you control the upgrade cycle and you can kind of correlate the upgrade of the distribution, the kernel with the software that, that, that you deployed. In the cloud, you're running an infrastructure that may require specific drivers or virtualized drivers. You know, in, in AWS, you have a Nitro, you have the ENA driver that's for, for the specific network device running on AWS. You do want to get something that's standard from the cloud, an image that's standard from the cloud that's fully optimized and has the latest drivers for AWS. You don't want now to start kind of forking or going to a different kernel version or distribution that will not be optimized and you will not get the upgrade or you will not get the full support. Same, you know, same, same in Azure. In Azure, you know, for example, I can, I can give you some specific experience that we had that there are a lot of uh, Paravirtua drivers coming from Hyper-V and uh, at the very beginning when we start testing, we noticed that we don't have the latest versions and they were not properly working because again, we were trying to run our own image or our own kernel. And that's why we realized that we should be running in user space. We should have all our code running in user space so we can just run on any distribution that we want. It will be a standard image that the uh, cloud providers maintain. On top of that, we just 
put our software and then we get rid of all the dependencies and all these constraints. We don't need to deal with the drivers with, that are optimized for specific cloud hardware. We don't need to, or we simplify the upgrade cycle because we know that this image is being upgraded and maintained and, and we don't need to take this in our own. So indeed, keeping as much as you can in user space is very important. It still has challenges, right? Because well, I, I'm just going to ask you that question because you know if you put if you push everything into user space, now you've got a performance issue to to make sure that you're not basically doing context switching too often because a, a context switch to, to into um into the kernel all the time is going to basically cost you. So you must have optimizations around context switching and other and other factors about how you design your application yeah. or your software sitting running on top. Yeah, exactly. So once you move to user space. And specifically in a platform as Lightbits, that performance is the key. You know, you have very low latency and uh, you need to process millions of IOPS. All these context switches, even interrupts, are, are critical. A few context switches or a few interrupts going to the wrong CPU or virtual CPU may affect your tail latency, for example. If you are processing one million IOPS, we are talking about million IOPS, one million operations per second. If you, for every IOP, you do 100 context switches which a user and kernel, we are talking about 100 million context switches. It's a lot. So there are a lot of software techniques to mitigate and actually even kind of neutralize all the overhead coming from all the context switches and, and interrupts. And it's all around using or newer interfaces coming from the kernel that are much more efficient than, than the older ones. Try to do polling, for example. Try to, instead of invoking a, what's called a syscall or trying to ask the kernel for something, just check in the memory if there's something that happens. You know, with NVMe, it's pretty, and NVMe over fabrics in general, it's, pretty, it's relatively easy because all the concept of queues is embedded with, within the system. So you all what you need to do is just check if there is something in the queue, check if there is something in the queue, and that can help you to avoid uh, many of the context switches. I was mentioned before also interrupts. Interrupts are things that are coming from the hardware. So you don't necessarily fully control if, when they are going to happen, and, but you do have the ability of where they are actually sent, in which CPU. So if you take care of sending the interrupt to the right CPUs, and you know that in these CPUs you are not running any critical part of your software, that can also be uh, very useful. And of course, also NUMA awareness. Try to understand hmm. you have software that's running in, 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 in virtual CPUs, but are these virtual CPUs actually uh, running in the same socket, running in different sockets? Are there actually two virtual CPUs that are part of the same physical CPU, like they're running like in hyperthread? So basically they're slow in each other. So all anything that you can do with regards to NUMA awareness, just know which part of your software or distribute your software across different CPUs in a way that it will be efficient from communication perspective, cache perspective, access to the PCIe bus, the, the IO that you send. That's also interesting because in the cloud, originally everything was kind of para-virtualized. You didn't actually have access to a physical device with everything virtual devices, but it's not the case today. The infrastructure in the cloud evolved. When you interact with the network, you are interacting directly with a virtual function. It's a PCI device, PCI pass-through for those that who are familiar with the term. It's basically, yep. it's like the virtual machine is interacting directly with the hardware. Now it's important to take a, to be aware of how this hardware works and how it affects the different 
subsystems in the in the CPU, whatever it's where you run the cache and the interrupts. I guess it's back to that very first thing that says, first of all, you don't have direct access to the hardware, but actually you do have to have a degree of understanding about the hardware because things do change over time. So, you know, Amazon could come out tomorrow quite happily and decide that they've got Nitro 2.0, which works slightly differently to Nitro today. And it might suit Amazon to do that because it gives them extra backend advantages to scale or to do some other things or management, who knows well, you know, what, what reason they do that for. But it might have a direct impact on you because it might change the way that some of the infrastructure works for you. So you, you're always having to sort of try and understand the, the platform in enough detail to make sure you can deliver your technology effectively. Correct, uh, and that's what we do. Every time that we get a new platform, the first thing we do, we benchmark, we test, and then we yeah. optimize. I can be, give you an example. You were talking about uh, Amazon. Uh, our first offering on, on AWS was running i3EN instance, a specific yes. spec, but then Amazon released the i4i instance. Both of them, i3EN and i4i, yes, these are virtual machines with NVMe devices and network, but it's not exactly the same. The, the way that the network behaved and even the NVMe devices the behavior of the NVMe devices was very different. Things related to that we experienced with regards to very simple things. And when you read the data, if the data is aligned or not aligned, the performance that you get may be very different. In the case of I4I, much better than in the case of I3N. So yes, you need to optimize for the cloud hardware, for the cloud instance types. But compared to, to on-prem, it's much simpler. And let me explain why. On-prem, we are a software-defined solution. So there is endless amount of hardware that you can run on. You don't, con you, you don't control which is the NIC vendor being used, which is the NVMe vendor being used, which is the CPU vendor being used, which is the CPU model. Basically, it's endless. So you cannot optimize for everything. You optimize for something in general that you know that's good enough for all the combinations. In the cloud, it's very specific. In, in the case of Azure, for example, there's very specific type of series of virtual machines, the LSV3, that has NVMe devices, and they look all the same, just different sizes, different scales. AWS is the same. We run in i3N, we run in i4I. Those are very specific SKUs, and they scale the size. So it's much easier to optimize because the combination, or there is no like combination of multiple options. There are very few options. And you know that all pretty much looks the same in the cloud. I say pretty much because we did have some experience in AWS that even i3n under the covers, the, the NVMe devices not necessarily were always the same. It depends on internal generations of the instance that, that we are not exposed. I suppose the, the comparison there is to, is to things like hardware compatibility lists that you would have seen with, you know, say VMware. There would be a very tightly controlled hardware compatibility list for that same you know that same reason and it also probably would take a lot of people back um a long way to all the nightmares and the horrors that come from trying to keep all your drivers and firmware matched when you're looking at things like hbas and all of that sort of stuff on premises you'd have to spend forever trying to keep on top of a compatibility matrix and understand and every time you upgrade you'd be testing and making sure you did it right so you know that whole process was a nightmare whereas standardization on on a more smaller uh, subset of things which is being forced on you by the cloud provider, not necessarily because that's the, you know, your choice, but it's actually a good thing that they do that because it helps them, but it also helps you. Exactly. Right. Let's um, let's go and talk about 
your product in detail then? Because we've, we've sort of skirted around the outside of what it actually is. And, you know, you highlighted the fact that NVMe over TCP is a solution that you developed. But what actually is your software solution? And what does it look like? I mean, it's, if somebody was trying to sort of deploy this, what what would they see? How would it work? How would you interact with it? And, you know, that, that sort of thing. Let's try and sort of dig into the detail in a bit more. Sure. So, so we... Lightbit software, it's a software-defined storage, which means you allocate virtual machines in the cloud, instances in the cloud, equipped with NVMe devices, running our software. You can start with three virtual machines, three instances, and scale to 16. And we pull all of them together as a sun in the cloud, as a storage solution. And because we are supporting NVMe over TCP protocol, you can go to any application, any other virtual machine running a database, whenever it's SQL, no SQL, just giving, you know, IO intensive kind of use cases and use the NVMe TCP protocol to communicate with our solution. Now, one of the main challenges in the cloud with NVMe is that the instances with NVMe devices are ephemeral. The data of the NVMe devices is not protected. It's not like EBS or Azure Managed Disk that they protect all the data. If the instance goes down, or there is a failure, all the data is gone. And we provide a lot of value because basically we make all this ephemeral storage persistent storage because we replicate the data across many virtual machines. We deal with all the failure handling. What happens in a virtual machine fails. Uh, we were talking a bit about NVMe over TCP. NVMe over TCP also has multipathing capability. So your application will exactly know how to switch and use a different path to communicate with a different mm-hmm. controller, a different virtual machine or instance can be environmental instance in the case of AWS, uh, and continue getting access to the data, sending your reads and writes like nothing uh, actually happened. But when there is a failure, someone needs to, to say, okay, some instance virtual machine goes down, someone needs to recreate the data that was there to reprotect, to create new replicas. And that's what we are doing with our software. We deal with all the failure scenarios. We deal also with the scaling that we were discussing in the past. What happens when you're getting out of space and you need to grow, someone needs to start new instances to, to give you more capacity and more performance. So our software is giving all this automation, all this capability to let you basically build your own sun in the cloud running on the AWS or Azure compute instances with NVMe. So I think that's something we sort of, we, I touched on it earlier, and I think this is just worth going back and, and mentioning again. When NVMe devices were brought back, it were brought into virtual instances, they were brought in in such a way that there is no long-term persistence of that storage. And I know that you have to look at each of the platforms and there are scenarios where I think if you reboot something, it's okay. But if you if you terminate the instance or you delete the instance, it, you know the, the data is lost. So a crash in certain scenarios can cause you to lose that data too. So NVMe, local NVMe devices are great because they're super fast and low latency, but you then look at it and go, well, that's great, as long as I've got a, an application that can tolerate losing all of its data. And I would suggest that most applications, not, not all, some there are some, but most applications would be pretty um, useless if every time the system crashed, you lost everything. So... I think when you when you start to see that, you think, well, how on earth am I going to use this effectively? And I look at your solution and think, yeah, I see that. That's great. Let's see how that, that, that now helps me. What you're doing, though, and hence the reason why I mentioned the, the term SAN in the cloud, you're bringing to the cloud all of those benefits of scalability, resilience, optimization, performance management, everything else that, that is typically 
um, seen on-premises, you're bringing that to the cloud and making that experience available to people in the cloud through the use of virtual instances. Right, and, and we are combining the best of the two worlds because we are taking the model that you are used to have on-prem, but we are also yep. taking advantage of all the features that you have in the cloud that you don't have on-prem. Like, you know, we remember scaling, ability to get more virtual machines in, in instant, yep. uh, availability zone, the fact that you have availability zones and you can replicate the data across availability zones to protect the, the data. Those are not things that you always have uh, on-prem or you may need to architect for them, but in the cloud you have them native. And I was talking about availability zones, but that was also a very important item because typically if you look at the high performance block storage offerings in the cloud, you will see that there are what's called a local redundant storage. It means that the data is not protected across multiple availability zones. With the sunny the cloud like Lightbits, we replicate, we have synchronous replication across availability zones because we are using the, the network infrastructure and we protect your data from cases that the entire availability zone goes down. You still have copies and, and the system running in a different one. And I think the other thing I see within that is that you have the ability to add in both data optimization. So you could, you may be doing this, you can confirm thin provisioning, compression, dedupe, all of those techniques. But you've also got the uh, data protection scenarios around things like snapshots and so on, which you can build into a, a, a solution. So those sort of things might be either not available or not easy to implement in the public cloud directly. And you can add that into the storage layer um, and add those values too. Correct. And, and we did that, to be more precise. And snapshots, let's take snapshot, for example. That's a very good point because you do have snapshots in the cloud today, but they don't really work like they work in on-prem. They are not necessarily seen provisioned snapshots with redirect on writes and copy on writes. If you take a snapshot, it may take time. If you restore, it may take time. You are going to pay for, how, for the snapshot that you take. If you need to clone now a volume from snapshot, in many cases, it's going to be like a full copy of the data. It's not like a thin snapshot that you clone the volume and, you know, as long as there were no changes in the data, you're actually using the same block. You are not actually duplicating the capacity or, or, or sorry, duplicating the data and increasing the capacity. So you implement again. Now you implement things in a very efficient way as it was on-prem in the sun, but in the public cloud. There's one other thing with snapshots, and that's certainly when I look at, say, Amazon snapshots, the data from an Amazon snapshot heads into S3. So that data is then effectively locked into the S3 platform. I can't take that snapshot anywhere else. I can't say, I want that snapshot image and I want to put it into Azure or take it to any other platform. But if I've got an, another layer that's sitting taking that snapshot for me, theoretically, don't, I don't, again, I don't know whether you do this or not, but you can tell me if you do. Theoretically, I could, I could ship that snapshot to another system, and that could be outside of the framework that the cloud provider provides. So it could be a different availability zone. It could be even to a different cloud provider. It could even be on-premises and off, and you know, off-prem. So potentially I've got a degree of abstraction away from the, the hardware infrastructure. And I think a lot of the snapshot implementations tend to be quite hardware specific today. Yeah, that, that's actually a great, a great feature to, to implement. I, I will probably bring you to be one of our product managers, but- uh, <laughs> I'll send you the check, don't worry, yeah. no problem for that. <laughs> we, we, we are now implementing what we call incremental backups, that it gives you the ability to actually use the, what, what our own incremental snapshot capability and yep. move the snapshot of the snapshot div to S3 or Azure Blob. And then you can take it back from Azure Blob or S3 to Lightbit. Now it can be a different cluster. It can be in the same region. It can be in a different cloud. Maybe it can be 
uh, between hybrid deployment, on-prem, cloud. Obviously, there's a lot of, of, of integration that needs to be done. That's what you know. I was saying that it's a great suggestion from feature-wise perspective that what you were mentioning. But yes, you know, having the ability to avoid any kind of cloud lock for your data, it's great. And, and that's one of, I would say, the major risks that people may have in the cloud. Because once you get in, you put your data, you don't have a way to take it back. That's maybe painful because once you need it, it will take time or you will need to deploy something to, to take your data out. To take it back out again. Okay. So in terms of operational model then, so do you operate purely in that software-defined model where you dedicate an instance or multiple instances to your software? Or do you operate in that HCI model too, where you can actually run applications? Do you prefer one or the other, or do you offer both? We are mostly focusing on dedicated, disaggregated storage. We don't look okay. into hyperconvert, and, and that's mostly because at scale, when you look into efficiency, performance, scalability, a disaggregated model is much more efficient than an hyperconverged. I would say that hyperconverged for small scale or for applications that do not demand a lot of performance and you don't need to optimize storage and compute independently, it's a great platform. But the use cases, the workloads that we are focused are not like that. They're very performance oriented. Being able to scale the, the, the storage and the compute independently, it's very important. And having the ability to optimize the compute without getting kind of constrained with the storage, it's also very important. Because if you're running a database, you want to run a specific instance type for the database that might not be the best for storage. When you go with hyperconverge, you're exactly. kind of mixing yeah. them, right? It's They coming together yeah. and you need more storage, you need more CPU, more memory. Uh, you don't have this uh, flexibility. Yeah, I'd, I'd think um, HCI can be a bit of a compromise in that sense, or, you know, it, it's fine for, for very specific workloads. But I think the key point here that we're getting to is the fact that you're building your solution to be there for certain high performance applications for very highly scalable ones. So you're really targeting a certain niche with this platform rather than people thinking, oh, well, I've got three or four instances, I'll put a virtual sun underneath it. That's not really the sort of the market you're targeting. Yeah, we are looking into storage intensive workloads is specifically that need to scale. And yeah, we are not talking about someone that wants to run a single virtual machines or two virtual machines and that's it. We are talking about customers that are deploying many applications, tens, hundreds, thousands, and they need storage that is scalable. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So Abel, that sounds great in terms of understanding all of that bit of the technology, but how on earth do I then consume this? What does it look like? Is this like via the marketplace? You know, do I have to sort of install the software myself? Or how is that process working in, in the way that you deploy this technology? It's very easy. It's indeed uh, via the marketplace. We are in both AWS Marketplace and Azure Marketplace. So if you go to Azure or AWS uh, Marketplace portal, search for Lightbits, you will find the solution. You click there, you just specify some basic information related to the capacity that you need, you know, cluster size, and that's it. A few clicks, and the system will be deployed automatically for you. Uh, we also support a kind of ring-your-own license model where you can install and deploy the software by your own, uh, same as we do on-prem, but the marketplace is the easiest way to, to start with the light bits. And specifically in Azure, uh, there is the concept of a managed application which means it's not just a marketplace offering, it, we also can manage and maintain 
live bits for you. We have access to the cluster. We can monitor, support, uh, okay. upgrade. So it, it's a very, very good offering. So you deploy and we take care for everything that uh, you may need. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite an important one because I mean, the marketplace things are great. And there's like there's this middle ground, isn't there, where you know you could just build it yourself or you could do something where it's fully managed by the, the cloud provider, which of which there are very few of those. And there's certainly not anything in the block area that really does that. Or you have that middle ground where you're in the marketplace and then you're getting the benefit of deploying it, but you have a certain degree of management um, yourself. Having that ability to have a, a completely managed service that's marketplace-based, I think is actually quite quite important. So I think anybody who's listening and thinking, oh, if I install this, do I have to then look after it? Well, in that instance, if you're doing it on Azure, I guess you don't. Is that likely to be something that would come to the other platforms, do you think? I mean, is that because Azure's got the, the capability to let that happen? Yes, uh, specifically in Azure, we, we do see that Microsoft did a very good job with creating this type of managed application offering that split between what's called the end customer and the publisher. The publisher is Lightbits in this case, and it can okay. give you different type of accesses based if you are the publisher or the consumer. So that, that's a very uh, a very good platform that uh, Microsoft is for the market. Excellent. So, okay, if, if you know, listening to, if people have listened to this and think, oh, I really like the idea of this technology, I really want to understand a bit more, Maybe they want to dig into the technology and understand it and deploy it, or maybe they just want to get in contact with you. Where are we going to um, direct people to, and how should they get in touch with you to find out a bit more? Okay, so a few things. First of all, you can go to the marketplace, try it. We have a risk-free offering, so test it. If it doesn't work, all is back. We are going to be in Ignite and reInvent. I personally going to be in uh, Ignite, okay. so anyone that wants to talk with me directly, I would love to meet you. We can dig into technical details, deployment, any question that you may have. We can do a demo. So please feel free to reach me, uh, abel at lightbitslabs.com. That's my email. Uh, we are going to be in reInvent as well. So if you are looking into running on uh, AWS, again, contact me. We will set meetings. We can discuss, talk. And of course, we have a lot of material in our website, work for AWS and Azure that you will see how the system works, how it's deployed, all the reference guides. So everything is publicly available. Perfect. Now, I normally put all of this stuff in the show notes so people don't have to remember. So I'll make sure all of those things you've just said get added to the show notes as well. So if anybody needs to go and look that up, it will all be in the notes and they'll be able to find it, And uh, including all the stuff you've given me and anything else that you uh, think of or comes to mind after we finish this recording. But I'll make sure it's all there. For now, though, Abel, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great hour to sit and learn about the technology to dig in and then really understand some of the nuances and the challenges. And I sort of look forward to digging into that a bit more in the future. But for now, thanks for joining me and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And it was indeed great to talk with you. Very, very good discussion. And I still need to bring you to be one of our product managers as well. Yeah, I'll be there. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.